There's some hope for us. There's some hope, Sylvia. There's some hope out here. Thank you, guys. I appreciate the. Doctrinally sound, just wish you were a little more passionate. <laughs> anyway, the uh, story is told of a miracle service which was to be held on a Sunday afternoon in a small city. The event was promoted by several radio stations and in the local newspaper, an ad read as follows, healing service this Sunday at 1 o'clock. Come Sunday, the place was just packed with expectant townsfolk seeking healing. There was an air of electricity, uh, almost as it were, a spiritual St. Elmo's fire. The healer took to the stage and proceeded to fire up the audience. He said, is there any among you sick today? Do you want to be healed? Who has the faith to come up to the stage? Come up right now. Up came the first man on crutches, and he asked him, he said, sir, what's your name? And he said, my name is Harold. He said, Harold, do you wish to be healed? He said, yes, sir, I do. And he hit him on the forehead. He said, then you're healed. And he took the crutches from Harold. He threw them out in the audience. The audience went crazy. And the attendants carried, walked, walked Harold off to the back behind the curtains where he would stand throughout the course of the service. Next up stepped a man with, apparent, with no apparent visible ailment. And he said, son, what's your name? He says, my, 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 my name, 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 name is Jimmy. He said, Jimmy, do you wish to be healed? And he said, yes, sir. He goes, okay, Jimmy, then you're healed. And he took him and he hit him again on the top of his head. And then the crowd was going crazy. And they led Jimmy off to the backstage where Harold was taken off. And there was a big commotion back there. And they couldn't figure out what was going on. And the faith healer yelled back behind the curtain. He said, Jimmy, what's happened? Say something. What's going on? And from behind the curtain, he heard Jimmy say, Harold fell down. You know, when I heard that story, unfortunately, such stories and such so-called miracle services generate cynicism and skepticism whenever faith and healing are discussed. And fortunately for us, Dr. Luke tells us much about the role of faith and healing, and as a physician is fascinated by God's ability to heal both physically and more importantly, spiritually. So today in our ongoing study of Luke's account of the life of Jesus Christ, we come to a passage that I've entitled, Unleashing God's Healing Power. You know, it's fascinating to me as I consider the fact that seven months ago when I decided to go through the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, I had no idea where we would be today in the study. I had no idea what would be going on in my life personally as, as, as it regards this cancer situation and it's just as comforting to me to see that God is in control of all things. And what I'm learning as I've studied the depth of my understanding of Scripture is, is just magnified by the circumstances of my life and seeing God at work. You know, and to be a teacher or proclaimer of God's truth, I'm learning that in order to do so, that God must crush a man deeply in order to use him greatly. And it's just a wonderful place to be. And I'm excited and encouraged by what God is doing and the depth of my understanding of passages such as the one that we'll be looking at today and, and the totality of all of Scripture. It's just a wonderful thing. So I would encourage you to turn with me in your, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, where we see the unleashing of God's healing power. 
In Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 17, we read the following. And it came about one day that he was teaching. And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. And not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher right in the center in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your stretcher, and go home. And at once he rose up before them, and he took what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. And they were all seized with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. In this passage, Luke sets the stage for what is about to take place. In verse 17, if you'll notice, he identifies for us the key cast of participants. We notice right away that Jesus, as was his custom, is seen teaching the truths of God. You know, we know that he taught the need to repent, a message that's consistent throughout all of Scripture, the entirety of Scripture. The first sermon that Jesus ever preached was, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The first step, if one is to have a right relationship with God, is repentance. Turning from sin to God, having a change of mind as far as heart and mind and heart about one's self-proclaimed goodness and the value of human effort in trying to reach God. Jesus would certainly teach from the Old Testament of God's promises also to send his Savior to, in order to deliver mankind from the, from the domain of Satan and sin and from darkness and death. His teaching of God's truth was his custom. In this particular time, we see it was to a full house. But if you'll notice, there's also a twist in the story. For in this passage, we're introduced for the first time in Luke's gospel to those who would oppose and ultimately have Jesus crucified. We're told that there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law or scribes. The scribes and the Pharisees were sitting there as if, as, as if they were a tribunal, having come from all over to judge Jesus and his teaching, watching him and his every move. And I can't help but notice as they're sitting there how often in life it is so that those who are critics of those who are serving God, those who are doing God's work, the critics are the ones who sit around. They're the ones who are sitting there observing, watching, criticizing, for rarely are they doing anything. They're never busy serving God. They're never busy being used by God with the gifts that God is giving them. They sit around as the Pharisees and the scribes did that day, and they looked at Jesus, and they sat there, and they, and they held him in judgment. They said, go ahead, let me hear what you have to say. Let me see what you have to do. And they sit and they criticize. May God help us never to become pharisaical or scribe-like as we look at those God is using to serve him and his people and his kingdom. We've got to be very careful about our criticism of one another. We've got to take a good hard look because I've realized in my own life, many times in life, I don't see what people criticize because I'm just too busy doing what God has called me and gifted me to do. 
We've got to be careful that we don't become critics and cynics and skeptical and mean-spirited as we watch others serve the Lord and think there is a better way to do it. Or if we were doing it, we would do it a different way. And my challenge to you is then, you know what? Then you do what God is calling you to do. And we'll encourage you, we'll we'll, we'll help you, but he has enabled you, he has empowered you, he has gifted you, he has led you, he has given you a passion. So I say, stop criticizing everyone who's serving the Lord and start serving him yourself. And you'll see that it's not as easy as it looks from the spectator seats. But the scribes and the Pharisees, as they came that day, they came and they were holding Jesus in judgment. They were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord, and I love this statement, it was this, as, as we look at this, we see that there's, there's, a, there's a confrontation that's about to take place. It's as if Luke is giving us a word picture of a great fight. And I couldn't help but think as last night there was a, a fight, uh, De La Hoya and, and Shane, uh, Sugar Shane Mosley, and, and the whole idea of a fight and the buildup for a fight and the opposition and in this corner and that corner. And I just thought, man, you know, it's kind of like in this corner in the white trunks from Nazareth, you know, having defeated the devil in the wilderness, demons and disease of all kinds, producing a miracle, miraculous catch of fish, and most, and most recently cleansing a leper, the champion of the people, Jesus of Nazareth. Hey, you know, and I got to go, hey, man, it's like, and in this corner in the dark trunks, full of cynicism, hatred, and self-ascribed righteousness, coming from every village in Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, the oppressor of the people, the scribes and the Pharisees, ooh, let's get ready to rumble. Beautiful. It's like, man, it's like, I, have, I don't know about you, I have fun reading the Bible. I just do. I just have a great time reading the Word of God. I mean, it's not torture to me. So many is like, I did my devotions today. Oh, God help you. Did you survive them? It's like, man, I saw a fight today. And these idiots thought that they were somehow a match to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was no match at all. But they're going to try anyway. Those foolish men are going to try anyway. So here we go. Luke captures the spiritual electricity of the moment. In the last part of this verse with the words, notice this. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. The word power is the word dynamis. Uh, The same word that we have in the very front of our bulletin every week. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power, the dynamis, the dynamite of God. To blow up hard hearts and prepare them to receive the truth of God's word. The word of God is the power of God to obliterate the hard hearts of men who are in rebellion against God. But faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Divine bone from marrow. The word of God. And here we have and the, the power, the dynamite of God was present in this place at this time for Jesus to heal. I said, man, this is, this is, this is, as they said, this is a great day. This is a great day. Before we look at the six truths which emerge as far as the power of God and unleashing God's healing power, it's important for us to understand the role of the scribes and the Pharisees. I don't want to paint them in a totally negative light, even though as we look and we see their judgmental, uh, critical attitudes and their spirits is what held them back from coming to faith in Christ. But at the same time, they were keepers of the law. 
They were there to make sure that Jesus wasn't teaching and preaching heresy. They wanted to make sure that what he was teaching was sound doctrinally. That was their responsibility. So we give them credit for doing that. And yet at the same time, they were not open to the word of God. They weren't open to the evidence that were presented. They weren't open to what Jesus said and did. Otherwise, they would have knelt a knee before him and praised him as their savior. But if we're to understand what happened to Jesus, we must understand something about the law and the relationship of the scribes and the Pharisees to it. When the Jews returned from Babylon about 440 B.C., they knew that, well, humanly speaking, they had lost all of their hopes of becoming a great nation. So they therefore deliberately decided that they would find their greatness in being a people of the law. They would go through and they would study the law. They would bend all their energies to knowing and keeping God's law, which, which in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but the problem is they kind of got off target. The basis of the law was the Ten Commandments. And these commandments are great wide principles for life. They are not rules and regulations. They don't legislate for each event and every circumstance. And for a certain section of the Jews, that wasn't good enough. They desired not just great principles, they sought a rule to cover every conceivable situation in life. And from the Ten Commandments, they proceeded to develop and elaborate on these rules. For example, let me give you one. The commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Then goes on and lays down that no work should be done on the Sabbath. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, explains this keeping the Sabbath day holy. But that wasn't enough for them. So they asked, well, then what is work? If we're not to do any work at all, then we need to define it. What is work? And they went on to define work under 39 different heads, which they called fathers of work. And even that was enough. It wasn't enough. And each one of these heads was infinitely subdivided. Literally, there were thousands of rules and regulations that began to emerge. They were called the oral law. And they began to set not only at a level with the Ten Commandments, they even became greater than God's commandments. So they would sit down and say, you know, the, the, the commandment says to keep the Sabbath day holy. And they would go from there and say, well, what does it mean to you? See, it's a typical nonsensical Bible study that occurs in our culture today. What does this passage mean to you? Well, you know what? Who really cares? The real issue is what does the passage say? What do the words mean? What is the context? What is the text? What is the understanding of what's being said in the context in which it's presented? What is the, the, the theme of the, of the letter? What is the, the theme of that particular verse in the passage? What is that word specifically mean it isn't a matter of what does it mean to you because you know what it it may mean to you 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 may be wrong and i've shared oftentimes one of the first bible studies i ever went to when i gave after i'd given my life to christ repented of sin and trusted in christ his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection for me personally received him as my savior i went to a bible study and then everybody's going around in the room saying what is that what what did that verse mean to you And one person would say one thing, another person would say another thing. This person would say, you know, it it meant up. This person said it meant down. And the person who was supposed to be teaching the Bible study would tell everybody they were given a good answer. Good answer, good answer, good answer, good answer. And he he looked at me and said, what what, what does it mean to you? I said, I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is last week that, you know, I was broken of my sin and I trusted in Christ as my Savior. I came to this church hoping to learn something about the Bible. The reason I came to the Bible study is I thought maybe you knew something about it. But apparently you don't. 
And I was like, man, what is that? You don't want my opinion. I, my, my, I mean, my frame of reference at that point in life was, eh, you know, spiritually, it was very, very shallow. And, and, but secularly, I had opinions about everything. Tell me, what does it say? That's what it's all about. Well, they started to say, well, what do you think work is? How would you define work? Well, what's work to you? Man, this is work to me. That's work to me. That's work. Oh, that's not work to me. That's... And so the list kept getting longer and longer and longer. Another example, you know, to heal on the Sabbath was to work. So, you know, you couldn't heal on the Sabbath because that was work. If somebody was dying on the Sabbath and you would heal them, well, you'd violate the law. And to the scribes and the Pharisees, that was a huge sin before God. Somebody was dying, and if, if Jesus would heal them, then he broke the Sabbath. Now, he could put a Band-Aid on them, but he couldn't put any ointment with the Band-Aid. I mean, they had a list of what it meant just to keep people alive long enough to get through the Sabbath. And then if you're going to heal them, heal them the next day. So a plain bandage on a wound wasn't enough. You couldn't put, you know, that was, you, had a, you couldn't put ointment. You couldn't put, you know, you could put a wad in a sore ear, but you couldn't put any medication on it. And as you can see, this would be crazy. So the scribes were the experts in the law who knew all these rules and regulations, and they would be asked, is he, is he violating the law? Is he violating one of the list of things that we came up with? So there's two things. First, the scribes, for the scribes and Pharisees, these rules were a matter of life and death. And to break one of them was deadly sin before God. And the second thing is only people desperately in earnest would ever have tried to keep them for they must have made life supremely uncomfortable and you've never seen more miserable people in your life than people who are trying to earn their way into God's favor by keeping religious regulations. They are the most miserable people on the face of the earth. You know why? Because it's never good enough. There's always something else to be done. There's always more that can be added. And if you're trying to work your way to God's favor, just give it up because it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us can boast. These guys were miserable. And as we can see it, because while everyone else glorified, praised God and rejoiced and danced in the streets when Jesus would heal someone, they sat back in their little corner and their little huddle, miserable about what they had just seen, trying to figure a way to get him out of the picture. They were filled with hatred. And you know what? And Jesus had no use for rules and regulations like that. For Jesus, the cry of human need superseded all such petty rules and regulations. But to the scribes and Pharisees, he was a bad man. He was a lawbreaker who taught others to do the same. And their system was unraveling before their eyes. That is why they hated him. And that is why in the end they had him killed. It is the tragedy of life. That those who were most earnest about their religion had no use for Jesus Christ. It was the irony of things that the best people of the day ultimately crucified Jesus. The most religious people of the day put their Savior on the cross. Their hope was in their religion. And it wasn't in a relationship with their creator through faith in Christ. God help all religious people 
to see that the purpose of their religion should be to point them to the cross. It should help them to see that there's nothing that we can do. You'll be more and more frustrated and you'll give up. And coming from, quote, a denominational religious background, I gave up. I threw in the towel. I said, I've had enough of this. I can't do it anymore. And I have no interest in it whatsoever. But I praise God for those that God brought into my life. I talked to our neighbor yesterday who said, you know, I grew up in such background. He goes, you know, and I have no need. I have no use for church. I have no use for religious people. And I said, well, you know what? I can understand that. came from the same background. But what you have a need of is a relationship with the God who created you. And you can have that relationship by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. His death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. And then you need to go to a good Bible teaching church where you can see people who live out their faith in such a manner that there's no hypocrisy or contradiction. Said, then you'll see what God's program is for mankind. It's awesome. It's good stuff. In Luke's account, we find the first of what will be many rematches. And as I said, they were no match for Jesus whatsoever, but they continue to try. And as we look at this, we're ready to look at the passage that shows us how to unleash God's healing power. But it's important that you understood the background because now you know what the point of confrontation or conflict was between the Pharisees, scribes, and what Jesus was doing and will do here on this remarkable day. Number one, we can't help but notice the compassion of the man's friends. Notice this in verse 18. And behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of Jesus. You know, in Mark's account of the same event, we learn that there are four men who are moved by compassion and a great love for this paralyzed man. They attempt to bring him to Jesus. You know, as I pictured the scene, I was reminded of how often Jesus was moved by compassion and would use compassion or love to illustrate great spiritual truths. And in fact, the example of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, we're told that the the man saw the wounded man, and this is what God's word says. And when he saw him, when the man saw the wounded man, he felt compassion, and he came to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the scene is very clear, and that's compassion in action. When we see the needs of another person, we, would, we, we should be so moved with compassion that we act upon what we see. Compassion in action. To move when we see the needs of another in such a way that we're able to meet that need or at least be used by God. You know, the point is this. If we're to see the, God's healing power unleashed in the lives of others, we must have the compassion and the love to bring them to Jesus. The compassion and the love to bring them to Jesus. And we must also be prepared to face obstacles. Compassion and love. Biblical love requires sacrifice. That we consider the needs of others more important than ourselves. 1 Corinthians 13 defines love as not seeking its own. But to do that which is best for the person in need. Seeing their need. There was nothing easy about carrying this man and then trying to fight through the crowd to get him to Jesus. They endured the judgment of others, even temporarily having to vandalize another's property to achieve their goal. But one thing is certain about these men, they cared for him. 
And their love was the first reason for the deliverance he was about to experience. Their love preceded his deliverance. And if you think about it, this is how it is and was with God and us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is if God's love tore open the roof of heaven and dropped down his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth so that he could die for you and me. He could die for the sins of the world and whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. See, for God so loved, God was motivated, moved by compassion. He was moved to action because he knew the desperate state that you and I are in. He knew that without him doing something, that we were all spiritually dead in our transgressions and that we were on the road to eternal judgment. We're on the road to a fiery eternity separated from the love of God. And he knew that in feeling the compassion and being moved by compassion, he dropped his son, Jesus Christ, as it were, out of the throne room of heaven, through the roof of the earth, and placed him upon this ground so that he could live a sinless life and ultimately die for you and I to make atonement for our sins. See, these men were moved. In our own lives, our, our families, our friends will very likely not know the healing touch of Jesus Christ unless we have the kind of love that rips open roofs, so to speak. If we truly love those around us, we will pray regularly and fervently for their salvation. And I want to challenge and encourage all of you. We've got a wonderful prayer ministry here. People that are committed to pray for your needs and to lift you up before God. And what a privilege it is to be able to take everything to God in prayer. What a, what a blessing it is to be able to go confidently before the throne of grace so that we can find that grace in our time of need. And we do so not in our own efforts or our own works, but because Jesus Christ has opened the door that we could have access to God's throne. And I challenge you and encourage you, and I see the prayer request, and I see the prayer, and I see the praise, and I see the continued prayers. And, and it breaks my heart to a certain degree to see that we don't pray very often for the salvation of those who do not know Christ. And I want to challenge us as a body of believers to pray for our family and our friends and our co-workers and teammates and fellow students to pray for those who have never touched been touched by the healing power of the Lord Jesus to forgive their sins that we would start to pray specifically for those that God has put a burden on your heart and if you don't have a burden for any of those folks who are lost, then pray that God would help you to see them as he sees them. For without a divine intervention, they will spend an eternity separated from God. God, help us to have that type of heartache. Because all physical ailments, all physical healing is temporary. If I'm healed from this, ultimately I'll still die. If you're healed from what you're praying for, or the friends that you're praying for, ultimately, you know, praise God for what he chooses to do, but ultimately they'll still die. For it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment, for the soul that sins shall die. 
we need to refocus our prayers on the eternal. That God would use those circumstances in their life to cause them to see a great need to be forgiven of their sins. And stop having our minds set on the temporary things, but on the eternal things. God, use this cancer, use this ailment, use this or that or the other thing. Use this financial difficulty, this marital problem, this problem with their children, problem with drugs or alcohol. Use this in their life to see their greatest need is to be forgiven of their sins. The question is, but why such an effort to bring him to Jesus? Well, that's where we learn, secondly, of the conviction of all of the men. And you'll notice that in verse 18, all five of these men, the four plus the one who was paralyzed, were convinced that Jesus could heal them. Why? Because Jesus had demonstrated such healing power on many occasions, and the word was now out on the streets. If you'll just turn back to Luke chapter 4, and you'll notice in verse 14... We're told that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. There we go again. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. In verses 36 and 37, we saw the same thing. And Jesus, it says, an amazement came upon them all. And they began discussing with one another, saying, what is the message? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was getting out into every locality in the surrounding district. The point is, is that the rumors or the news about Jesus began to spread and it spread quickly. I'll tell you what, <laughs> I've never seen rumors spread more quickly than with God's people. It's like all you got to do is tell God, one of God's people, say, listen, you should pray for me, but don't tell anybody anything. That's like the best way to save yourself a whole lot of time talking to a lot of people. This is unbelievable, man. I mean, I'm like, I answer the phone. People are going, oh, no, can I talk to Chuck's wife? Because we want to know when his memorial service is. It's like, man, what? It's like, here, I can help you. I was like, I'm praying it's before yours or after yours. It's like, what is that? You know, it's like crazy, man. It's like, it's like, it is. It's like living along, you know, it's like living to see your memorial service. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Thank all of you uh, for, you know, all your cards. And, and it's awesome, man. It's like, man, this is great. You know, I get to see it because the next time I won't see it. But, but the point of the matter is it's like there was, there was rumors that were spread about them. It was spread quickly. The rumor turned into a roar. The Greek word is echo. The word we get echoes. There was a great disturbance. There was an echo throughout all of the land. And now the report of him or the news, the word used here is logos, which means the information about him, this famous one, was out on the streets. Everybody was talking about him. If you follow the progression, not merely a rumor was spreading concerning him. Not merely was it a rumor which caused a noise, an uproar, or a great disturbance. But the people were beginning to have an intellectual understanding and appreciation for him. They began to understand that there was no one else to turn to for God's healing power but Jesus. It had never happened before. Blind people never saw till Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. Lame people never walked till Jesus raised up those who were lame that never walked. Deaf people never heard until Jesus opened the ears of those who could not hear. Dead people never came back to life until Jesus said, come forth, rise up, and come on back. See, the news spread 
The word was on the street and people began to have an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is. They began to realize he is the one that God had always promised because his signature card would be these are the things that he will do to prove that he is who he claims to be. It's awesome. Now the question is, they were convinced that there was no one who could do what Jesus could do. And I was so convicted of that myself that I asked myself the question, do I have the same sense of conviction that there's no one who can do what Jesus can do? How about you? Are you convinced that Jesus is the only hope for you and for all of mankind? When the multitudes, when Jesus was preaching the word of God, the multitudes began to not like to hear what he had to say. They wanted to keep playing, let's pretend. And we began to talk about sin and judgment and repenting of sin and turning to God and trusting in Christ when he began to preach that he was the bread of life that came down to heaven and that he would be lifted up and all would have to accept him and, and believe upon him and trust in him the multitudes turned many of them said I don't want to hear any more of this and he looked at his disciples and said are you going to go too are you guys going to leave too John chapter 6 read it he said you're going to go too and you know what they said where else are we going to go because you have the words of eternal life there is nowhere else to go. There is no one else to turn to. It is all about you or nothing or nobody. It's all about you. It's all about you. Remember we talked about all about you, Jesus. Lift them up. Lift them up. It's all about you. Peter later boldly proclaimed salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus said the same when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but through me. The point is simple. When a Christian truly believes Jesus is the only way, the only hope, he or she will go to great lengths to encourage his or her friends to come to Jesus. Do you do that? If not, why not? What other answer is there? Who else do you have to, to turn them to, to send them to? To point them to. These men, including the paralytic, understood there is nowhere else to go but Jesus. I want you to stop and think about something. This guy had to be so convinced of it, he let his friends carry him up to the roof of a building. And I, he's had to go, is there any other way we can do this? Well, no, the crowd won't let us in. And, it looks like, and, 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 and when you look at this, it, it brings us to the third point, and that is the creativity in bringing them to Jesus. I love this. And not finding any way to bring them in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof, let him down through the tiles with his stretcher right in the center in front of Jesus. They presented him to Jesus. They didn't let the obstacles of the crowd. They didn't let the packed house. They didn't let the sneers of people saying, hey, man, stop pushing. Stop shoving. We're here first. They didn't let any of that stop them. They put their heads together. They prayed. They came up with a creative way to get the man, and I love this, in front of Jesus. They took him up on the roof, and the houses there had timbers that went one way, and then they had sticks and twigs that went another way. Then they put dirt on top of it, and in the springtime, it actually would have grass that would grow on it. And so there was about two feet of dirt that was up on top. They were carrying the guy up the side of the house, and you know the brother was convinced that Jesus was the only way because there is no other way that he's going to let somebody carry him up to the roof of a building. I am sorry, but I'm sitting in a hospital bed thinking about this story going, they took me from the seventh floor to the basement, and I'm thinking, is there any other way to get down? 
down there than what this journey is that we're taking. You're smashing me into the wall. This bag's hitting this. This thing's hitting that. You're hitting the thing up on top. They're laughing. Oh, we didn't put the bed down low enough. <laughs> like, you know, are, are you like, did you just start here today? I was like, are you new? I mean, what is this like? Is this, is this I'm just laughing with them, man. I'm just thinking, this is crazy, man. And it's like they're taking through these corridors. I find out UCLA Medical Center is only one building in the nation that has more corridors than UCLA Medical Center, and that's the Pentagon. And they're going down this one, this one, that one. It's like, hey, you guys need to drop like some pellets or something so we don't get lost here. I mean, it's like, and I'm just going, man, you know what I'm thinking? Is, can I just get up and walk down there? And the answer was, well, if you could, we'd let you. But obviously you can't. You're laying in bed, so shut up. And it's like, <laughs> But so I'm thinking, you know, but the creativity, they, they went up, they dug a hole in the roof, they dropped them down in front of everything. You know, and if we're to get folks in front of Jesus, if we're to reach the world with the word, we must get creative, yet we must never get so hung up on the method that we forget the message. You know what I'm saying? I like this because in this story, you know, it was all about Jesus. And, and you know, several weeks ago in a message, I said, you know, we, we need to lift up Jesus. Well, here's another thing you can add to it. Not only should we lift him up to the world around us, but we need to step aside once we do. Step aside and lift him up. Because you'll notice you don't hear anything about these other four guys once they drop them in front of Jesus because it's all about that man and Jesus. It's all about that man and his relationship to his Savior. And we need to just step back at that point. We need to get creative to get people in front of Jesus. But once we get them in front of Jesus, then it's the message of repentance and recognition of sin. And responding by faith, by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ, his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection and receiving me as Savior. That's what it's all about. You know, that's why we had an outdoor Easter service. That's why we had a women's luncheon. That's why we had a picnic. That's why we, you know, had that testimony of Garrett at Edison Field. That's why we give away tapes and CDs. We give them away. To date, we have given away 8,579 tapes and CDs of God's Word in the past seven months. And I say praise God for that. Why? Because it's a creative way to get God's message in the hands of those who need to hear of their need for forgiveness. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have prison ministries. That's why we have our prayer team. That's why we have youth programs. That's why we have all the things that we do are creative ways to get people in front of Jesus. And once they're in front of Him, then we need to lift Him up and step aside. As John the Baptist said, He must increase, I must decrease. We must, you know, He must increase, we all must decrease. It's all about Jesus. Why do all this? Because we're moved with compassion for lost folks. Because we're convinced that Jesus is God's only hope for mankind. You know, there are many people who are not going to receive the message of salvation until you and I lift a corner of their stretcher and carry them to the place where they can hear the word of God. They are paralyzed and mobilized by sin and many other things the world holds for them. Some, some of them are paralyzed by prejudice and others by indifference. They're never going to hear Jesus say to them, Son, your sins are forgiven and let you take the corner of their stretcher and they bring them to Jesus. We need to be sold out that he is the only hope for mankind. These men were convinced of that and they went to great lengths to get him in front of Jesus. Number four, notice the certitude of their faith. In verse 20, we see, and seeing their faith, he said, to, he said friend, your sins are forgiven you. Wow, isn't that great? 
Biblical faith is always identified by action. In your personal reading time this week, take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. For we know that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen. For we know that without faith it's impossible to please God. If you'll read that passage, you'll recognize and understand what I did was the action steps that were there. By faith, Abraham left and went. By faith, we look at every person that's noted in that passage. By faith, they acted upon that which God told them to do. By grace, we're saved with faith. What is the action that we need to take? When God convicts you of your sin and you know that you're not perfect, and I don't care how good you think you are, you need to be perfect to go into the presence of God. When you're convicted and know that you're not perfect, God says, here's what you need to do. You need to turn from sin. You need to turn to God. You need to trust in God's provision for your sin. And that is His Savior, Jesus Christ. He came. He died on the cross for you. He rose again from the dead. You are to receive Him as your Savior as best you understand and understand in your heart. God, forgive me for my sins. I trust what you say is true. I act upon what you command me to do. And that is to believe upon Him whom you have sent. I believe on Jesus Christ, His death and the power of His resurrection. I receive Him as my Savior. And the Bible says it's by grace through faith that we are saved. It's awesome. By faith they acted. These men acted and it was their faith. And he said, you know, seeing their faith, the faith of the friends who brought him to Jesus and the faith of the man who was now in front of him. It takes faith to act upon becoming creative to get people to hear the gospel. It takes faith to be able to say it's, it's by God's word alone that any person will be convicted of their sin. It takes faith. It's faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It, tr- it takes trusting God at his word that there is no other way under heaven by which men can be saved than the death of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. And we need to trust him. He saw their faith. All four of them plus the fifth one, he saw their faith and said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And I want to close with the convincing argument of Jesus, which is beautiful as we look at all this. And we see it in verses 21 through 25. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But in order that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise and take up your stretcher and go home. And at once he rose up before them and took up what he had been lying on. And he went home glorifying God. I want you to notice if leprosy represents sin and we know that it does, then this man represents the paralysis that's caused by sin. It is evident from Jesus' response that this man's illness was a symptom of a greater problem, and that was sin in his life. He was an example of what the scribes and Pharisees believed to be true of all illness and affliction. They believed that it was a result of sin. If you remember in John chapter 9, a man who was born blind, they said, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? That was the understanding of the day that all sickness and disease was caused by sin. So their take on me would be simply that, hey, brother, you know what? The reason you got cancer, man, is because you got sin in your life. And so, you know, you got to confess your sin. And, and so that was the doctrine that they promoted to people. But the Bible does teach that there are times when illness is a result of one's behavior or choices. 
When you get a chance, read 1 John chapter 5. There is, a, there is an illness or sickness that's caused by our own behavior or choices. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, God says he took people out because of the way that they defamed the Lord's Supper, because of the way that they were doing the things that they were doing, and they died as a result of it. So there are times in our life where we can directly attribute the consequences of our behavior to that which we're doing. Take, for example, drug and alcohol abuse. Think about the word intoxication. Intoxication means to put toxins in your body. You know, back in the day when I was drinking and getting sick and throwing up, my stomach was smarter than my head. I mean, if you stop and think about it, it's a true statement. You know, your stomach's going, get this out of here, and your head's going, hey, give me another one. You know, it's like how stupid we are. But that's the truth. And, and there was a direct correlation between the consequences of those choices that I made and the consequences of what I suffered. And God's saying, hey, very simple, man. You know what? You don't like hangovers. You don't like throwing up. You don't like, you know, sticking your face in the toilet. There's a solution for you. Stop getting drunk. Duh. That's a thought. You know, the guy in the hospital bed next to me, man, the guy's hacking and coughing and choking and gagging and wheezing. And it's just like... And I didn't pray for him at all. I... You know, and it's just like, and, and, then, and then on top of it, it's like, you get, the dude can't breathe, man. And, and then I hear his friends come to visit me. He goes, man, I can't wait to get out of here and have a cigarette. I, dude, it's like, are you serious? I mean, you know, I, and, and, it's just, and I, 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 I say these things, and I know that this is, old, this is like, you know, that real territory. You've got to walk real slow. But, you know, the bottom line is this. You know, 99% of all lung cancer is attributed to cigarette smoking. We had a good friend who died of lung cancer, and the thing that he wanted me to do, preach at his memorial service, was that if he knew what he knew as he was laying, dying in a hospital bed about lung cancer and the consequence of smoking, he said, please encourage every person that comes to my memorial service to throw their cigarettes away, because this is a self-inflicted wound. And all I'm trying to do is encourage people to consider, you know what, don't allow your wounds to be self-inflicted wounds. I'm learning about, you know, diet. I'm learning about eating. It's not going to be my doctrine from now on because my doctrine is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But it's a balance of life. And you look at all those things. Sexually transmitted diseases are a direct result of behavioral choices that people make. Some of the other health problems that we have are a result of either our diet or lack of exercise. That's just a fact. That's just the way that it is. But, you know, and I throw that out there, yet there is also sickness and disease that God allows for His purposes and for His glory. John 9, Jesus said, Neither this man nor his family sinned, but he was blind so that the works of God could be displayed in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said the same thing, that he prayed to God that God would remove his affliction. We believe from the letter that he wrote to Galatians that it was some type of eye ailment that he had. And he prayed three times and God says, you know what, I'm not going to remove it from you, uh, for in your weakness my strength will be perfected. And so we know there are times that, you know what, some of it's self-inflicted, other times it's for God's purposes and his glory. And we've got to really examine our own selves to find out if, the res- if what we're dealing with is a result of one or the other. We can 
consider it all joy when we encounter various trials that aren't self-inflicted wounds as a result of our own behavior. But at the same time, if it is, we can go to God and confess our sins and we're, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from it. So the point of all that is, is that Jesus convincingly argued, listen, that it is easier to say your sins are forgiven because that cannot be verified like physical healing. They sat there reasoning in their hearts, which is another sign of the deity of Jesus Christ. They knew what, he knew what they were thinking. They never said it. And he said, why are you sitting there reasoning in your heart? You know, what, you're, what, what are you struggling with? That I said, hey, friend, your sins are forgiven? You have a problem with that? Well, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your pallet and walk? What's easier to do? Say your sins are forgiven or tell this guy who's never walked a walk. And they knew what was easier to say. It was easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because no one can validate that. No one can verify that. You can't see that. It's not like when you have a sin, you have a little green dot on your ear. And if God forgives your sins, the green dot's gone. That would be a wonderful thing, but that's not the way it works. So he said, in order that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to for- forgive sins, he said, arise and take up your pallet and walk. And the guy stood up immediately and completely and wholly and when God heals he heals instantaneously and forever his sins were forgiven that was his greatest need now I want you to see how convincing this argument to them is think about this you're a Pharisee you're a scribe and you have believed all your life that the reason that there is illness in someone's life is because their sin think about this so if their illness has now gone away and they are healed then logically their sin has gone away too because sin was what caused their illness, their disease, their sickness, their affliction. And so they sat there and went, whoa, dude. I don't know if they said that or not, but but they were just going, man, I mean, it's like, do you see what's going on here? He healed him. If he healed him physically... And he said his, their, that his sins are forgiven. Then we know that not only is he healed physically, but he's also healed spiritually. And his sins are forgiven. But no one can forgive sins but God. And what was the reaction of the crowd? And we'll close with this. They were blown away, to put it in, in, in just very simple terms. This man got up and glorified God. The rest of them were seized with astonishment and began glorifying God. They were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things this day. Here as we go. The reaction is just that. Case closed. They were seized with astonishment. They began glorifying God. Why? Because God was present in their sight. They began, they were filled with fear. And we need to have a little bit more of that in our lives. The reverential fear of God that says, you know what? I am on holy ground. Just like Peter, when he was in the boat and saw the miraculous catch of fish, he said, Lord, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. As Isaiah looked at the throne room of God and caught a vision of heaven, he said, I am a man of unclean lips. When we are in the presence of perfection, when we are in the presence of deity, when we are in the presence of God, every flaw, every sin, every nook and cranny and crease that we have becomes extremely evident in light of His perfection. And they had a fear of God. We need a fear of God. I need a fear of God. You need a fear of God. Our nation, once again, needs a fear of God. Our church needs a fear of God. We need to have that reverential fear that we are in the presence of God. 
His holiness, His righteousness. They were filled with it. It oozed out of them. It came out of all their pores. And their last thing is said, we have seen remarkable things or strange things this day. And the word is the word we get paradox. We have seen a paradox today, folks. We have seen a man do what only God can do. Therefore, this is not an ordinary man. This man must be God. Isn't that great? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word of God goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We have seen remarkable, strange things today because we saw a man do what only God can do. We saw a man forgive sin. We saw a man heal a man and, and, and enable him to walk. We have seen the power of God unleashed today. We are truly blessed to have been here today. In closing, as noted earlier, Luke says of this event, And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. That power was unleashed by the compassion, conviction, creativity, and the certitude of the faith of the paralytic, paralytic's friends and of his own. And we too must love others so much that we're willing to tear through roofs for their sake. We must have the conviction that Jesus is the only way. We must have the dynamic certitude of faith that Jesus can and will heal those who come to him. And the greatest need is the need to be healed of sin. Jesus' authority began at his incarnation when he genuinely became one of us except for sin. His authority became evident in his sinless life so that he could say, Can any of you prove me guilty of any sin? And I always do the will of the Father. His authority rang from the cross where he became our atonement. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His authority to forgive sin abides because of his priesthood. We're told that therefore Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The Greek word completely combines the idea of completeness and eternality. Eternally, for all time, Christ has given us a complete, absolute, total, eternal salvation for those who have repented of sin and they recognize the finished work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection power. And they've received him as Lord and Savior. Whoever a man or woman is, whatever he has done, no matter how heinous his sin, whether murder, infidelity, perversion, child abuse, betrayal, embezzlement, lying, jealousy, gossip, or even being self-proclaimed righteous, whatever it is, Christ can save him completely and eternally. That is why we're not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Lord can do anything he wants. He can heal any disease he pleases. But the greatest miracle, the only one that is eternal, is the forgiveness of sin. And in closing, I ask one last question. Has he ever said to you, your sins are forgiven? Have you ever come to him and said, Lord, please forgive my sins? Have you ever trusted in him, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection? 
Have you ever believed upon him? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this event, this one remarkable day out of many remarkable days as you walk the face of this earth. We are so blessed. We are blessed first to come to recognize our own sinfulness. We're blessed to repent. We're blessed to respond with faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection to receive him as our Savior. God, we are so blessed. And Lord, I pray for those who may not be aware of their relationship, not sure. If they're not sure, then the reality is they have none. That today would be the day that they would repent and turn from sin and turn to God. That they would believe your word and trust in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection for their sin personally. That we can do whatever we can to bring people in front of Jesus so that they can be confronted with the gospel message. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.